Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. What is going on? Welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James. Super excited to be here with you all, my friends. I hope you're having a good day. I hope everything's going well for you. Right now, it's extremely cold in Minnesota. This morning, it was negative 35 with the wind chill. That's rude cold, my friends. That is rude cold. But alas, someone else who knows cold she hails from Boston, Baston. Uh, <laughs> my Massachusetts accent comes in and out. It's, give or take how long I've recently I've listened to Mayor Quimby. Uh, but still, <clears throat> I am super excited to bring on Ama Marfo. Ama Marfo is a comedian. That's not what she would lead with, but it is what I would lead with her. So there it is. That's what happens when you do the bio, not them. Uh, but she is a hysterical individual, but it's sneaky funny. And that's what I love about her. You got it. She's one of those people that you want to sit next to in class because she's not going to make the whole joke for everybody. But if you're sitting in the right spot and you're within earshot, you're going to appreciate what you just heard. She's also an outrageous educator, a speaker, facilitator. She does a lot of amazing work in higher education and outside of higher education as well. Apparently, she's taught lessons to the people whose furniture I build regularly at Wayfair. This podcast is brought to you by Wayfair. That's a lie. Anyway, also a fun fact about Ama is that she is thrice an author. Her first book blew up in the higher education space. It was called The Eyes Have It, and it's all about being introverts in, in working in education uh, and being a leader and being an introvert. She also wrote a book called Light It Up, which is about being a student leader as an introvert and her latest passion, even though it has always been her swan song of sorts, is around creativity. And she wrote a, ba- a badass book called Cultivating Creativity. Ama is a dear friend who I do not spend nearly enough time with. And so really we're here because I'm selfishly missing her, but I hope that you enjoy our catch up and some of the dope places that we go in this conversation. Let's bring her out right now, my friends, the one, the only, Ama Marfo. James, so nice to see you without having to be in Minnesota because negative 35 is a ridiculous temperature. It's, yeah, it's, it is ridiculous. Yeah, it's the kind of temperature that yeah, last night I took the uh, the trash out, and I'm a, I'm a bearded brother, as you know, sure. <clears throat> and uh, and it's the kind of thing that I mean the the trash is maybe I'm going to say 40 feet away from the back door, and uh, by the time I walked to the trash place, my mustache had already frozen um, from what little moisture I apparently we all apparently breathe out. So that's cool, a little crunchy mustache. That was lovely. Mm. No, you thank love, you. You love to see it. You love to see it. Um, how the hell are you? I'm okay. I am slightly warmer than you. It's cold in Boston also, but mm-hmm. not quite that cold. <laughs> well, that's good. Congratulations. Thank you. It's an, it's an honor to live here. <laughs> it's an honor, honor to live here. <laughs> oh, shoot. Amma, we have known each other for quite some time, but the amount of time that we have known each other does not equal the amount of time we have spent together. Because I feel like we've known each other for, I'm, I'm going to say six, seven years, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. But we've probably spent maybe a total of like four days together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's the thing about internet friendships is you can know people for ages yes. and yet like time in a room 
especially now is just so much smaller. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But I have respected you from the jump. Here's a fun fact, Ama. Uh, the podcast that you had called the imposters, mm-hmm. you can tell people about the imposters. It is no longer. Um, but, uh, it is a, a group of uh, four badass women, uh, who worked in higher education. And now I think all of them worked, right? Everybody's now out, uh, formally, um, formally in higher education, right? Or is think- one still in in Oswego? Half of us are out, half are still in. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But here's a fun fact about that podcast. It was the first podcast I ever listened to. And I listened to a bunch of episodes. I really loved it. It was right around the time that that I was starting to get into uh, my passion around authenticity and vulnerability. And so imposter syndrome was always a thing uh, that was on my brain. It just kind of always is a thing that's on my brain for a lot of reasons but uh but either way uh it's just a fun fact that you are you you can fully take credit for the person that got me into podcasts well that's an honor because i i love podcasts i love podcasting i miss that show all the time um but yeah it's it's an honor to be somebody's first because it's kind of an entry point into something that's so big right and you have yes. to enter at just the right point to stick with it so happy to have done it that's it. As they say, you always remember your first. So, do. Uh, <laughs> are you doing any any podcasting or, or the like right now? Are you are you doing any, or have you stepped away from this medium for a second? I'm not doing any podcasting of my own, but some of the independent work that I'm doing is with a podcast company. So I get to listen to a lot of podcasts, take a look at how the industry is moving, and kind of plot an intentional return, kind of knowing a little bit more what I might want to do with the next one. Oh, okay. Beautiful. And it sounds like you and I need to talk offline uh, about that. (laughs) I love it. Um, This show is called Diner Talks. Are you a late night eatery individual? Now you are, you are a comedian The comedians run in late night circles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if you still, I don't know if you just go to the show and then go back home and go to bed or if you dabble in a late night meal, but if you do enjoy a late night meal, where do you like to go in Boston? And do you have a favorite typical late night move for yourself as far as what you typically order? That's a great question. I Thanks. am a late night eats person. Mm-hmm. I, typically do comedy like in the Cambridge area uh if there's a home club to be declared the one that I was working in was in like Central Square so there was a Chipotle near there mm-hmm. Starbucks near there um as far as Chipotle <laughs> it's, a, it's a good one it gets the job done um as far as diners go specifically we have one um closer to downtown called South Street Diner that's open 24 hours which is excellent we don't have a whole lot of 24-hour food places in Boston um, but that one's always really good. And I'll get breakfast at pretty much any time. Breakfast knows no time of day, contrary yeah. to what uh, many establishments would tell you by their hours. I disagree. Sure. You can eat it anytime you want. Yeah, I agree. Don't 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 box me in. Mm-mm. Yeah, for sure. But now are you, when, when it comes to breakfast, are you sweet or savory? What's your breakfast move? You know, I am kind of a sweet person overall, but I'm a breakfast savory person, which makes no sense. But mm. it's who I am. I contain multitudes, James. Oh, just when I thought I could put you in a box. Gosh, darn it. Punch Uh, my way out. I love it. Okay, so savory breakfast person. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I I credit my my uh, my my current partner with with switching me a little bit to more savory okay. uh, in the breakfast department. But uh, but yeah, I still I don't know. I can still go ham on some French toast, some pancakes, waffles. I'm still here for all of it. As should we all be. Just yes. whatever whatever strikes your fancy. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. Speaking of putting people in boxes, Ama, uh, as I mentioned in your in your introduction, you have done a lot of work, research, lived experience, and whatnot around introversion. Mm-hmm. Introverts are consistently shoved into boxes. Big time. I would say that even as, I mean, I'm an extrovert. I don't know if I hide that well, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, I am, uh, as an extrovert, uh, I often found myself confused by introverts, but I also often loved the challenge of introverts because here's the thing with an introvert is that they're not going to give it to you right in the beginning. But if you're able to break in and become friends with an introvert, then buckle up because they're actually going to follow up with you and like remember things about your life. They're not like Jay-Z on to the next one, on to the next one, like extroverts sometimes are, right? Like introverts kind of have this amazing inner circle and they choose to spend time on that inner circle as opposed to creating new connections or broadening the circle. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, but I often consider introverts to be shy and that is wrong. That is an incorrect uh, a way to describe introverts. Yes. It's imprecise. I'll say in the sense that that there are shy introverts and there are outgoing extroverts, but there are also shy extroverts and outgoing introverts. Um, I think at one point I kind of explained it as being along an X and Y axis. So Mm -hmm. rather than just going across a line, you can plot anywhere within those four quadrants and that's totally fair game. So I think of shyness as kind of, a fear of being in social situations, whereas introversion is a little bit more of an understanding of what energy that situation costs you. So it's a calculation Mm -hmm. of like like knowing that a lot of external stimulus, knowing that a lot of people around, a lot of light, a lot of sound, a lot of other types of things can take that energy from you. You kind of have to figure out what to give your energy to. I think about it a lot with as like a cell phone. So if my phone has 20% battery and I could either watch a YouTube video or text a bunch of people, one of those takes more power than the other. So you kind of have to manage your energy that way. So yeah, it's more of an energy management thing and less of a fear thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, I I love that. What a great visual too. And so in your journey of introversion, when Mm -hmm. did you come to a place where you were like, you know what? My voice needs to be heard. Introverts, it's time. It's time for us to talk, right? Like Susan Cain, quiet, right? Like that powerful uh, a TED talk that came out. Um, that uh, I, I forget where 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 she was as far as when you were. Um, but uh, you know, when was it time for you to be like, you know what? I'm an introvert, but I'm about to get loud. Okay, I'm gonna get loud, and I'm you know I'm a, and just like where's that point where you became? I guess developed a sense of pride for your introversion. That's a good question. Um, I know in, gosh, it must have been student development theory in grad school, uh, circa 2010, 2011, um, we started having that conversation about where people identified on the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Mm-hmm. And when I, my very best friend in grad school, um, capital E extrovert, actually also from Minnesota, Minnesota factors into the story a couple times. Oh, here we go. Um, but we started working together and talking a little bit about how our experiences in leadership positions had students had been different, how we kind of looked at the types of things we wanted in jobs were different and started putting together what ended up being one of our very first conference presentations together about what it looked like to be each of those things and how it manifested in student leadership. And we did that session at the Northern Plains NACA conference in St. Paul, Minnesota. So 
We were in Florida at the time, decided to submit to that conference. So just went to Minnesota for fun in the winter, which is <laughs> why. No, but it was but it was a lot of fun. It was a good opportunity to explore some of those distinctions with someone who I was very close to and who understood kind of the difference between the two. So once I got into a professional role, I started thinking more about how does this apply to students and thinking about who I was working with presently, how we identified new students to come on board, what the makeup of our leadership roles were, and what it would look like to value introverted contributions as much as we do extroverted contributions. Because I was thinking a lot about the job descriptions we were putting out and saying people needed to be effortlessly ongoing and be high energy, who that applies to and who that leaves out. So once I started having those conversations, I asked other people what it was looking like on their campuses. And then they started thinking about, hey, do you want to come talk to our students about this? Do you want to come talk to our staff about this? So it became a larger conversation once I indicated I was interested and other people said, we might be interested too. So I just kept talking about it. Just kept talking. Mm -hmm. You ain't gonna shut this introvert up. Uh <laughs> well, and then eventually I wrote it down because I was like, I need to take a nap, but people still want to know. So yeah, right. <laughs> you 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 take it. It's all it's all in here. I'm gonna go take a break. <laughs> Here's my manifesto. You're welcome. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. And I mean the world the world for the most part celebrates extroversion, right? Introversion has never been a, oh, shoot, you're an introvert? Introvert? Oh, damn, get over here, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's never been like, hell yeah, calling all introverts for this job position, um, those kinds of things. Where, why do introverts get, catch so much flack? Like, why, like, when did it become more desirable to be louder as opposed to introspective? You know, I think so much of what we identify as positive leadership is kind of hand in hand with being outgoing. So someone that is willing to speak up in a place, really comfortable in positions where you have to talk to a lot of people. Um, and at some point, we just kind of equated that kind of loud and out there leadership with good leadership. Mm. And in that we kind of turn the opposite side of, well, if you don't have those things, then you don't have solid leadership potential. But I think a lot about what leadership really needs is the ability to deeply relate to people and to think through decisions before they're being made. And some of those things come really easily to introverts, but that part of the process of what identifies as a good leader, for some reason came along a lot later. So there was a lot of like making a case for, maybe I don't have these things, or maybe it's not always that easy, but here's what I do have. And over time, we're starting to catch up to that now. Yeah. I love that. And I think that it is, I do think that people are starting to, uh, that people are starting to catch up to it, right? I think mm -hmm. some of the, uh, some of the work that, that you have done and, and, and others that have put uh, introverted badassery on the map, right? And into people's uh, minds has been extremely helpful in that way. Uh, and, there's still there's still certainly work to be done because for some reason not not even for some reason you just kind of you actually just hit the nail on the head where we think that the loudest person in the room must be the most confident right when in fact they are probably just the loudest person in the room right like that's that's all they are they're not necessarily anything else uh, and sometimes they're even the most insecure right I know that as an as an extrovert I will often talk more the more insecure I get. 
Um, and and, and I, I often equate it, especially with my ADHD, I often sometimes when my external processing, what it looks like is a toilet and <laughs> uh, a toilet that's been used. And then I start talking and it gets flushed. And, the, and if I nail the point, I, if I eventually get to it, then that's great. If not, then we're all just like, this this smells and uh, i don't know what we just <laughs> sat here and waited for um and it, it, so uh it's interesting to watch the way the insecurities of both personality types play out uh, well and to me it's interesting that you kind of said really explicitly external processing and that i think is really the difference and i wish i remembered who said this to me because it hit the point so clearly is the idea of an extrovert speaking at the beginning of a thought an introvert speaking at the end of it so you're talking your way through a thought that same process is happening in my head but you'll get the end result of it yeah and i think being able to kind of value the fact that there is something happening behind that silence as humans, we're not really great with silence. We don't tend to trust mm. it. We tend to kind of fill that vacuum with a lot of thoughts about why it's happening. Yeah. So if I'm in a meeting and I'm listening, someone's just like, well, she doesn't want to talk or she's not listening to what we're talking about or she doesn't care about what we're talking about. When in actuality, everything that I need to say is kind of coming together. And if you wait and if you create those spaces for people, the end of that thought could be something really important really essential yeah. to what you're having a conversation with, but we're not accustomed to building in that space. Yeah. Um, do you know how much less trouble I would have gotten into in my life <laughs> if I thought before I spoke? Like, I mean, I just like, I'm, I'm just, I'm like racking through the timeline of my life and the just, I mean, I don't know how many feet of my own that I've had in my mouth. Um, but like <laughs> I need to buy tastier shoes. Um, is what I'm saying here. Uh, I put my foot in my mouth a lot <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it is fascinating uh, to watch. And that is why, uh, I have the utmost respect for my introverted friends. And that's why I, so, I mean, my best friend in the world is, is an introvert, a super quiet dude, uh, astrophysics PhD, right? Like, <laughs> and, and, uh, and yeah, he's, he's a, he's a boss, uh, a brilliant man, but he's, uh, it's, it's a quiet brilliance. And, uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it is, it's disheartening to see the way introverts are sometimes put into this box and extroverts also were put into boxes also because it's also not fair to assume that I'm confident, right? Like it's also not fair to assume that I have all my stuff together and I know exactly what's happening. No, I just happen to be talking. Um, <laughs> now here's an interesting layer to it is that, uh, you're an introvert who identifies as a woman. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, but, uh, women, are societally taught, and this is getting much better, fortunately, but still, still much work to do. Women are societally taught that they should be uh, seen, not heard, right? And so, mm -hmm. is there another layer in there? And if I'm if I'm making a connection that doesn't need to happen, you can also tell me to go for a walk. Um, but is there another layer in there about uh, being a woman who identifies in an in as an as an introvert or a person of color who identifies as an introvert? Where what does the intersectionality of that look like? That's a great question, and I think we're now starting to see a lot of people peel back some of those layers to identify the fact that someone who identifies as introverted in maybe a majority population might then have different types of challenges from someone who is marginalized for any number of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so I've definitely had those conversations with women who identify as introverted, where some of the things that they gravitate to by way of temperament 
are actually then pursued as being more gender based Hmm. and it can hurt you in some situations. So thinking about being the type of person in a professional environment who maybe wants to contribute by taking notes because that's the way you process information that then becomes, well, we have a woman in the meeting that will take notes and you get sidelined from other things. Or for people of color, if there are stereotypes that are typically ascribed to you, so being the sassy Latina or being the outspoken Black woman and you don't apply to that, that then shifts perceptions of you as well. So being able to identify that all this stuff is important, but we don't need to buy into the stereotypes of it really on any front of it, just complicate how we're able to think of each other. So you're absolutely right. It does look different as you pile on marginalized identities. So being able to be attentive to what counts as what, what's attributed to what and how we're treating people accordingly, it's complicated, but people are complicated. And I think we kind of have to acknowledge that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But we, I mean, we as humans are, and and I really appreciate the, the way that you spoke about that because I think it highlights this issue that we as humans have, and and which is we love to put people in boxes mm-hmm. because we as humans we love ourselves a pattern, right? Our brains are pattern generating machines, and not all of that's bad, right? Like if I told you that tomorrow I want you to eat your cereal with your spoon in your other hand, you'd be like, oh god, I don't even know if this one's stable enough to hold these golden grams, right? Like, and it's just one of those things like poking yourself in the eye, right? Like it's just an untrained action. And so we we have some of these patterns, which are really great. And some of these patterns are also stapled directly to fight, flight, or freeze and whatnot, right? It's like we have a quick snapshot assessment of am I safe right here? Mm-hmm. Um, so those kind of moments and patterns aren't all bad, but we have to recognize when patterns are creeping in the way of the way that we choose to interact with somebody because we say, oh, you're from here, you look like that, and you're an introvert, cool, this is the box that you're probably in. I mm-hmm. will now talk to you like I talk to people in that box, not as you, fellow human being, with capable of independent thought and potentially a diverse range of emotions outside of that box. So it is, uh, it is, it is understandable at a base level why we do it, but it is also mandatory that we catch ourselves more, right? That is where yeah. growth, learning, you know, light things happen. Uh, and so I would be curious to hear, how have you done some of that teaching of others and, and helping them, I guess, quite literally unbox an introvert, right? So that an introvert can fly in all of these different spaces, given their other identities, potentially. For me, I think really in any type of education that I've been able to provide, it's about letting people know what needs to be done, but also to the extent that I can, letting them know why. So being able to say to somebody, hey, if you're planning a conference, you can't just do five minute breaks, you need to do 15 minute breaks. Most people don't tend to connect with that because their priority is, well, we can be done in four hours if we have five minute breaks. (laughs) And I'd rather be done in four hours than listen to whatever it is you're about to say. But for me, if I'm then telling people that 15 minutes is because the brain isn't set up to process information that quickly, and the training that you're trying to do that you want people to remember is going to fly right out of their heads if they don't have time to process it. So you do this training to avoid maybe certain types of questions that people keep coming into your office with. And if you spent the extra half hour, 40 minutes at this training, letting that sink in, that'll save you six or seven hours 40 or 50 uh, visits to your office, 100 to 200 emails, just going, what did you say that time? 
So being able to give a reason behind some of those things has been really helpful. And I remember there was a year that I had started to revamp a student training and we did exactly that. Like they were doing five minute breaks before I said, I want 15 and didn't explain it. And the evaluations were awful. They were like, it was too long. We wanted to go home. We don't know why you did it this way. The following year, all I did was explain what you could do with that time. So I said, you have 15 minutes between sessions. If you want to sit on your own and go through some of the stuff you learned, you can do that. If you want to get together with other members of your organization and talk through it, you can do that. If you want to walk across the street to get coffee and come back, as long as you're back and we have the next session, you could do that. That was the only thing that changed. And the evaluations were so much better mm. because people had a sense of what that time was for. So I think anytime you're trying to make some of these changes, if you know what the benefit's going to be and you can describe that to people, most of the time, if you have a good relationship and trust built up, they'll go along with you. So again, to that point of filling in that vacuum, they're not wondering what that time is for. You told them. So they're more able to trust you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, and you're, you're, uh, you're, you're closing off the opportunity for people to make assumptions or judgments or whatnot. I mean, people still going to do some of those things, obviously, but uh, you're we as humans, as, as much as we like to claim freedom and whatnot, we appreciate a good barrier every now mm -hmm. and then. We appreciate a good outline, right? Some lily pads to jump to yeah. uh, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love that. I love that. So it's funny. I'm also, I love that is one of these phrases that I'm also trying not to say as much, but I say, I just have these vocal ticks. It's fascinating. I love that as a big one because I've been on this app called clubhouse now Oh and, sure. and, and clubhouse is, they love the phrase. I love that. Uh, it's maybe, a space filler. It's, it's another just, way of kind of like in the absence of the dead air you would get. Yeah. It's, it's just filling space. That's all it is. It is. But I also do love what you said. And so it's a weird moment. Uh, <laughs> It's like, I love that, but I don't know how to not say I love that. Yeah, exactly. For the first 20 episodes of this podcast, at least, uh, interesting. I mean, you could you could play a, a strong drinking game to how many times I said, that was so interesting. Good to uh, know. Yeah, interesting being the longest word in the human language that means really nothing. Uh, I say that all the time. <laughs> I said, interesting is a word that says a lot and nothing at the same time. Yeah, I interesting is never more than a five and never less than a five. <laughs> that's, that's perfect i might actually use that because it's just it's one of those words that i'm like you picked it for a reason and i think that reason is you didn't want to pick another word yeah yep it's yeah it's every it's a it's the world's safe word actually yeah yeah <laughs> spot on <laughs> oh shoot so uh Speaking of putting uh, people in boxes, you and I, uh, you and I ran in many of the same circles as higher education professionals. Now, this is not necessarily yeah. higher ed prof. Uh, it's not a higher ed podcast, but uh, there are many higher ed professionals that have listened to it. And what's going on, my saps? Um, <clears throat> it's an unfortunate acronym, SA yeah. Pro, um, but it is what it is. <laughs> so uh, it's like it's like actors with SAG, right? It's like eh, yeah, doesn't, doesn't I love it. Good. Doesn't feel but, good. Yeah, but here we what are. Can you do? <laughs> <laughs> so you and I uh, are both former uh, full-on campus-based uh, uh, professionals. I worked in Res Life and campus activities. Where where did you work? I was campus activities and student leadership. 
Okay, great, excellent. So yeah, so uh, so we so we know so we know the game, uh, but yet we also both got out, um, mm-hmm. and now we are both independent contractors that still benefit from our uh, our previous work experience and networks that we had the great opportunity to build. And I'm very grateful for uh, many of my best friends are still still in the game, and and uh, and I tell people often. You know that I loved working in Res Life. I would still sleep on a twin extra long today, my friends. It's a comfortable sleep. Uh, well, <laughs> so, it can be. It takes a little bit of rigging, but you can get it there. You got to get the egg crate out there for sure. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but still, uh, but still, you and I is still running that circle. So I'm, I'm curious as a who is now, I guess, technically we're vendors, right? I don't even know. That's a, yeah. that's, I hate that word, but I think it's technically what we are. Um, but uh, do you still consider yourself a higher education professional, especially, and I ask this because I think this year, uh, years with the pandemic mm-hmm. has been one of those moments where I'm like, I don't know if I'm allowed to claim it this year. Because like these people are like in the trenches and obviously my business has been affected as well as is yours, Mm -hmm. but like these people are in the trenches having to come up with three different potential plans, give or take things, opening students being here, hybrid models, yada, like they're in and then they're having to throw all that out. And then they have like, it's just like, (laughs) we're in different places right now. And so this has been the first year where I'm like, I don't know if I'm still allowed to say this, but yeah. How, how is it, how have you always handled it? Uh, I'm just, I'm selfishly curious. Well, I think about it as, I mean, I'll, let me first affirm what you're saying in terms of like this past year, it's felt very different to call myself that. But I think a lot of that is more on the line of like, in terms of where my work turned, Mm. I'm doing less campus-based things than I probably ever have. Um, So in addition to doing some of the speaking and facilitating I, work that I do, I do a lot of like writing, content creation, and digital marketing. And some of that is for organizations that are higher ed affiliated, and some of it isn't. And I think mm-hmm. I found more work that isn't that. So this is the least amount of time I've spent in that space, mm-hmm. be it virtually or physically. Um, but I also think that in a lot of ways, the work that we do still applies to that group still matters to that group. So for me, like the vendor term has always been challenging, Mm -hmm. but I also think the vendor term is challenging because of the dichotomy that's been set up about it. It's not inherently bad. We've just decided that someone who might have something to sell us can't also educate us. And I've always had a really difficult time with that piece of it. It doesn't need to be that broken down. Like a lot, like you or I and a lot of other people have things to offer from an educational perspective, but I think a few bad apples that preceded us kind of went in, turned it into a sales pitch, and now everybody thinks we're all going to do that. So yeah. it's it's being put into, again, this theme of being put in boxes, but we don't really need to be there. We can break out of that box. We should be allowed to break out of that box. Yeah. Yeah, that's real. That's real. I think that... I think that first off, I love the way that you just put it around how the a vendor is. It's not inherently a bad term. I think for me, I hear vendor smarmy smell, smarmy smell, smarmy <laughs> salesperson, <laughs> um, and uh, it is. Uh, and I hate that, right? Like, I mean, my whole mm-hmm. business is not, yes, yes, obviously I have to do sales, but I never want the sales to feel like sales, right? It's right. like relationship building and I also need to put food on the table. So, you know, how, how can we work together to make that, but that happen, yeah. um, right? And, uh, but you're right, we do see these individuals and this is true in any any industry, right? Mm-hmm. You have your 
you have your people that are just real deep in the sales, right? The cold callers, the you're you're on the email list and you're getting hit up every other day and they're in your whatever your organization's Facebook group is blowing it up with the quote unquote new great limited opportunity. Um, right. And those those kinds of things that we see those folks. And uh, I think I have always run I have always run from that image so hard because I hated them. Mm-hmm. I hated that approach as a higher ed professional when I was officially like locked in on campus. Uh, and so, but I also think that my fear of that has also made me undersell myself frequently. Yes. I, I definitely agree with that. It's kind of recognizing what people expect of you and kind of knowingly or unknowingly allowing that to dictate how you present yourself. So there are definitely opportunities where I've known I have something to offer this person, but it's really difficult to get that message across without them seeing me as that person who is trying to sell them a thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. How have you navigated that? Like how, what, uh, you know, what is your, I guess, a sales approach in that way? You know, when we think about you know, being entrepreneurs, we have to come up with our own sales strategies, sales tactics and whatnot. How, how have you approached that? I mean, for me, it's been about finding ways to provide value that don't necessarily deplete my ability to give good work. So for example, Earlier on when I was starting out, I probably gave a lot of things away for free or for cheaper than I probably could have. But now I don't have the capacity for it because I have so much other stuff to do. So if someone calls and says, like, can I hop on a call and we can just talk through things? They have 15 minutes. And then after that, I'm like, here's what else I can offer and give you a little bit more time. Not because I want to, like, definitively sell you on the thing. But A, this time lets me know if I can be helpful to you. But B, I can give you more attention when I'm not worried about the opportunity to possibly be able to make money within that sort of thing. Like you were saying, being realistic about the fact that we have to put money on the table. I would love to give stuff away and never talk about money, but my landlord doesn't accept exposure. I've asked several times. (laughs) So it's just not a sustainable way to go about doing things. And again, especially in education, it's really difficult because we're accustomed to getting a lot of that knowledge and a lot of that expertise for free. It's a, it's an especially difficult sell for us to be able to say, I recognize you're accustomed to getting some of this for free, but this has to cost something. And again, the why is sometimes helpful for that. Yeah. Yeah, that was beautifully put. It's something that I inherently understand, but don't always do good at. Sure. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who, one of my Achilles heels that I have an, an innate uh, fear that individuals might not like me. Right. And so therefore it causes, or no, I, I have a fear of people not liking me. And that also blends into another fear that I've had that I know I've talked about on here, which is being a burden to others. Mm-hmm. Right. And oftentimes a nagging salesperson or, you know, or just even, even if uh, just a salesperson, that's or, uh, the, if the sale is just a little bit out of the reach of the budget. I'm like, I'm burdening them. I'm making them uncomfortable. I hate this moment. I have done something wrong. Mm-hmm. They are my people. I should right. And uh, so those, those moments in sales are, are tough for me and I'm not always the best at navigating them. Uh, and so I love the way that you put it uh, and the way that you are good selfish about your time. I think that's a really positive positive twist and, and, and something I probably could get, get behind. 
It takes it takes a lot, and it's something that I kind of have to regularly re-up because occasionally something will come across where I really want to do it, but it doesn't make sense for me to do it for super low money. So I then have to think about what attitude, what mindset am I going to bring into that space if I'm actively feeling undervalued? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be at my best. That person will not get the best version of me. So being able to say, I can't do it for this amount, and maybe not explaining all of that, but just saying this is worth more than what you're asking it to be. If people can come up to it, they can. And if they can't, then sometimes it's okay. And being okay with letting it go is the other thing that was really difficult because very early on, I just didn't want to let anything go because I was working from a place of scarcity and just being like, well, if I let that go, I'll never be able to work again. Mm -hmm. And kind of getting into a place of you have ample opportunities, you get to pick And then getting to kind of make those decisions for myself and feeling a little bit more empowered, which of course is going to sound bulletproof here. It isn't. I have to renegotiate this with myself all the time, but kind of coming back to that mindset has been really helpful in kind of knowing the worth of what I have to offer, being able to offer it in as many different ways as I can, and just trying to make sure that the person gets taken care of, even if I'm not the person offering what they need. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've often I've often said the phrase entrepreneurs have to earn the right to say the word no. Yes. And and that's that is slightly problematic at times, for sure, right? There's something that uh, it, it means that your time isn't worth it or that you should say yes to everything, right? When when you really should be kind of doubling down on your business and your worth and things like that. But in the beginning it, tr- it truly feels like as you said, operating from a place of scarcity mm-hmm. and it's like, I'm, I'm going to need some, I'm going to need some food to eat. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I also love the irony of this conversation as you wear a hoodie that says artists need lunch money, yes. and, <laughs> which is a dope hoodie, by the way. Thank uh, you. So the, uh, but yeah, that that phrase of uh, of entrepreneurs need or need to earn the right to say no. I still believe some of it, I think, but I also think, the, the follow-up phrase to it, you know, just like a good Martin Luther King quote where, you know, white people like to quote half of it, not the second half. Bingo! Um, <laughs> um, but uh, so I would say that the back half of that uh, of that quote is, um, <clears throat> but then uh, they must have the wherewithal to use the no once they've earned it, right? Like uh-huh. you've got, you've got to lean in. I, you know, I heard, I heard recently uh, in a conversation, a phrase that, that kind of punched me in the face a little bit. It was a very simple one. It's that no is a complete sentence. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh God. Yeah. Because I I'm always hitting people with the no, but right. You and I both, both love comedy and we'll talk about comedy in a minute. Uh, and, and so now uh, we lead, uh, you know, we talk about yes and all the time and improv mm-hmm. and I sometimes in sales, I'm a yes, but, or a no, but person where, you know, being proud of who you are and what you've built and understanding your value doesn't have a, but at the end of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's, again, that's one of those things that like layers upon who you are and how you're socialized kind of contribute to that. So like being a person out in the world, no is a complete sentence and it doesn't feel good. And then as a woman who's out in the world, no is a complete sentence and it doesn't feel good. And as a woman of color out in the world saying no as a complete sentence doesn't feel good. And just, it feels bad for different reasons as all of those things get layered upon it. So it takes a tremendous amount to kind of be able to overcome it. And I I also think that people hearing it should also kind of think about that piece. Like, 
I don't want to say no. Societally, I probably shouldn't say no. So if I'm saying no, I need you to trust me that it's for a good reason. And most people assume good intent and are okay with that. Not everybody, but most of them do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you have an experience? And if, if this is if this is too personal, then feel free to tell me to uh, take a hike. But like, do you have an experience, or can you think of a time where you felt pressured because you were a woman or because you were a, a person of color to uh, I, I don't know to I don't even know what the phrase is to to lessen your value or to show up different uh, in this space, especially as a you know maybe when you were first starting out as an entrepreneur or. Uh, have you kind of always uh, been able to, I don't know, maybe just be fortunate to have avoided those situations? Or do you have an example? One thing I will share there is probably less about the value element of it and yeah. more about the showing up different element of it. Mm, okay. So the nature of the speaking that I do is largely leadership training, things around creativity, and like a certain lane of things that I'm good at and feel comfortable talking about. Now, with some regularity, I will get asked or get approached and someone will say, oh, I heard you're a speaker. That's good because we're having this diversity problem on campus. And can you and I have mm. to kind of cut that off because I understand while they're asking. And I've said that to people like I understand that I look the part of what you are asking. And said it in those words, I understand that I look the part of what you're asking. Yeah. But ultimately, in terms of the expertise that it takes to require that, looking the part is not enough. And I'm mm. lucky to have other colleagues who put in the time, who put in the energy, who have gotten the additional education to do that work really well. And for me, I would much rather give them the opportunity to set that group up for success with what they need than be able to kind of jump in and say, yeah, no, sure, I can do that. I probably could. And I think I could do okay at it. But I know people that would be great at it. And I'd rather let them have that opportunity to get the great version of it. So yeah. that, and it's so difficult because I, again, I completely understand why it's happening, but I mean, there are things that I talk about that I come alive again, giving the best version of myself because I love that topic. I know a lot about it and I can give you the best version of what it takes to do that thing. Well, for me, things like diversity, inclusion, and equity and justice, while they matter to me, there are people who can speak to that and give you the tools that you need to do it well far better than I can. So I'm happy to see that work to other people. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's a, it goes back to also like this can matter to me and it cannot be my business. Right. right? This can matter to me and it can be, you know, somebody else's whatever, the way that they make income um, or yeah. choose to educate. Uh, yeah. And I have a version of some of the topics that I talk about where within that session, it speaks to those things. It acknowledges them as important. But if you need a little bit more help in terms of certain types of creating foundational elements for it, I'm not the speaker to do that. What I have to offer you will not help you in that situation. And in some cases, if you take what I said and decide we've covered it, we're done, it's actively going to hurt other people in your organization, especially the people who you're probably trying to help. So me being able to understand as someone's telling me what they need, does my approach fit that need? If it does, we can move forward. If it doesn't, and with some regularity it doesn't, then it's okay if it's not me. We can come back to what I have later on after your foundation's kind of been established, but I'm not that person to help you build it. I can help you once it's built. Yeah. 
I love that. I love that. some some classic know thyself shit right there. Uh, and I, and I'm I'm here for it. I'm here for it. And that's hard though, especially as as uh, you know as, as we both have been that that brand new entrepreneur where it's like this is opportunity, this is mm-hmm. money, this is that, and like that kind of goes back to what we were talking about. Like entrepreneurs have the earn the right to say no, but at the same time you gotta. You also need to build the, the self-confidence and the uh, the vision and the alignment uh, around saying no as well, and and that that align finding that alignment and leaning into that alignment mm-hmm. is hard when you're operating from a place of scarcity. As it is because you want to be able to do everything and you yeah. feel like if you're not capable of doing everything, then you won't be able to do anything. And that's such or a difficult around. place to opposite, <laughs> operate from. And it takes time to like work past that, but doing the work and kind of getting good and figuring out where that sweet spot is that you want to be in and then doing what you can to get really good in that area, the work gets better and you yeah. get better. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of finding uh, finding that passion, finding that nugget that uh, I've heard it called the golden thread, the red thread, whatever it is, your through line, you're at this, you can call it so many different things, alignments mm-hmm. um, and, and whatnot. You have dug your heels in, uh, in creativity as uh-huh. being something that you are super passionate about, like this matters to me. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and like your, your TEDx speaks a little bit about it, the, the role the humor plays, uh, and, and there's areas of, of everything you wrote the book, like I said, cultivating, uh, cultivating creativity. Did I say that right? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so creativity is where you have chosen to truly point the ship as of now. And that's not to say that you have ignored your introversion friends. I know that you're still called on to do that work and it matters to you, but your latest passion is around creativity how did that happen? And, and what is, I guess, what, why is it that creativity is the thing you're like, I will fall asleep. Uh, I will not fall asleep until I've figured out a way to tell more people about this, to teach more people about this. Well, for me, it started when I was still working on campuses. I was doing a lot of work with student activities and student organizations in particular, And we would have periodic conversations about events they wanted to throw or programs they wanted to put on place on campus or initiatives they were working on. And as soon as they had something go wrong, they would stop. They would quit. They would just say, well, it probably wasn't supposed to happen. And that really bothered me because (laughs) a lot of them had good ideas that maybe needed a little bit of a tweak or maybe needed just kind of to be redirected and set on a different path, Mm -hmm. but no one was sticking with it long enough to find that. So I started kind of digging in and figuring out what capacities do we need to have to be able to kind of regroup when things go wrong and set us forward. And a lot of creativity mechanisms, a lot of frameworks, a lot of theories seem to fit that bill really well. So I started introducing that to students like through trainings, through resources that I would send them. And it became really interesting because then when they would come into my office saying something went wrong, they would then want to start talking about, well, what can we do differently next time? And that piece was missing before. Mm. So then I started thinking about in what other areas could that be helpful? So thinking about it as a tool for problem solving, back to what we just talked about, thinking about it as a way to make change around equity and inclusion actionable, Mm -hmm. Um, thinking about how you could rethink your career and the career path that you build for yourself with an eye towards creativity. It just became too useful to not want to try to talk about what, um, what I could do to kind of help people figure out where that fit for them. So it came down to 
figuring out what common assets either most of us have or could with relative ease develop. So things like relationships with people in positions of power and influence. So when you have a new idea, being able to say, this person higher up is willing to vouch for me, go to bat, put in resources to advance that idea. Um, things like naturally collaborating, which was counter to a lot of people's ideas about creativity because everything we tout as innovative, we put one person in front of it and say they did it. And more mm -hmm. often than not, there are a lot of people around them. Like so normal jobs kind of thing, how we highlight, yeah. how we, okay. Exactly. So thinking about things like we'll put one person in front of the innovative idea, say they did it. And to be creative, you have to do it alone. I've never really believed that. And most of the research around it bears that out. So talking about collaboration being normal for that. Um, determination, the idea that anything you try to do that's different will always take longer than you think it will. And I tell people this, I've written three books and I've underestimated how long it would take me to do it every single time, even though I've done it before. Yeah. Um, so trying to figure out how to stay motivated when the problem you're trying to solve or the challenge you're trying to address is really big. All of that plus more is part of kind of bringing creativity as a mindset into the work that you do. Mm. Just said a word, Amma. Uh, I like it. I like it. It is the the through line of creativity, and 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 so and so much of what you just spoke about is. I mean, first off, it's just fun to watch you light up, friend. Uh, and that was Thank just that was, that was special. Uh, and and it's just cool. It's just cool to hear the way you talk about it and get passionate about it. And like, I'm still going. Don't cut me off, <laughs> uh, right? Like, I got more to say. Um, <laughs> like that. That's the moment, right? That it's that. That's how you know when you found something, when you just can't stop talking about it, thinking about it, writing about it, uh, and and wanting others to feel it as mm -hmm. well. And uh, and so so that is that's awesome. And and now you know since I since like uh, we mentioned earlier, we haven't spent a ton of time together necessarily. A lot of your creativity that I've witnessed, yes, I heard about it in, in the podcast and and some other places, but a lot of your creativity that I've that I've witnessed is in is in comedy. Um, and you mm -hmm. are a do you do you describe yourself as a stand up comic? You do a lot of comedy shows. You've been doing comedy for quite some time. Yeah, about four years now. Yeah. Maybe four and a half. Wow. When you look somebody in the eye and tell them I am a stand-up comic? Are you at that point? Sometimes. I think it depends on what I'm doing in the moment. Sure. So, like, if I'm at a comedy show and someone's like, are you one of the comics? I will say yes. But sometimes I'm there maybe um, covering it for, like, a website so that I'm pressed. So then there's, like, that awkward, like, yeah, sometimes, but not right now. It's very odd. But, yes, I do identify as as a comedian and somebody that writes comedic stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Which is which is funky because you know w when I go to your website, it's not up there, um, right? Like com your comedy stuff isn't up there. And we're, e we're easing into that part of this it. This is yeah, and that and this is one of the things that I love is that in some of our spaces, the way that we show up creatively, not everybody's ready for it in some of those areas. Right. Right. Like and and uh, and so I think especially. Uh, to combine these two conversations before we talk a little bit more about creativity, to combine these two conversations, you have uh, this work in the field of higher education, which is by far the most woke audience in history. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, he says with a, a smidge of sarcasm, um, but, right, but they are a, but truthfully, the, many, many higher education professionals, you know, they, uh, they, 
they are passionate. We are passionate about diversity, equity, inclusion, representation, uh, language, and things like that. All things that are important. Mm -hmm. All things that are important in higher education, but are often pushed, twisted, uh, ignored for the sake of a joke or for the sake of a point to push a button in comedy. Yeah. Right. The yeah. way that educators teach and the way that comedians teach, because I do believe comedians do teach. Oh, right, very much so. Is yeah. very different. How are you? How do you find that juxtaposition is probably too strong of a word, but a dichotomy that, that you know, what do those two worlds look like for you? I think for me, it's being really thoughtful about the point that I'm trying to make and to whom it is being made. So, and the points that you made about like higher ed responding to some of those things a little bit differently than audiences who aren't affiliated that way is a good one. And I remember a NASPA where that kind of presented itself very clearly. Um, the year that John Lovett was a speaker, did you go to that one? I did not. Um, very early on in his talk, I can't remember what year this was. I want to say it was like 2012, 2013, not important to the story. Um, <laughs> but he made a joke relatively early on about kind of being nice to see people there and like thinking about some of the learning they would be doing. It's like some of you are here to meet your colleagues. Some of you are here to learn new things. Some of you are here to cheat on your spouses and watching the Twitter back channel, just kind of like. A bunch of very educated people who would ordinarily tell students, like, I'm going to hear somebody out, just decided they had stopped listening. And that was fascinating to me because, one, like, just the way that they treated it versus how they would want somebody else to treat it was very odd. But, like, more to the point, it was a good joke. Like Strong joke. Yeah, yep. exactly. It's a very yeah. strong joke. What happens at conferences? Of... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a strong joke. Honestly. For some people, it was a true joke. And I really do think that it was just fascinating for me to kind of watch people decide once that came out of his mouth, nothing that he said was valuable. Um, it was odd. It was very, very weird. And just thinking about kind of the walls that we've put up and the way that we're kind of expected to behave, sometimes humor can help with those things. Mm -hmm. And I think not allowing humor in those spaces or deciding what kind of humor counts and doesn't count and of course, there are a bajillion exceptions to this and a bajillion clarifications to this. But sure. <laughs> I th I, I'm going to say, in aggregate, I think there is room for lightness and humor in the work that we do, because some of the things that we do are silly or ridiculous or yeah. funny. And being able to honor that makes it easier to do the work, because sometimes the work's very hard. Um, so, yeah, I just I always hope for more space in that conversation um, every now and again something will pop up from like a meme page or like a student affairs humor page. There was one year where something got bad enough that someone asked me like, hey, do you wanna to come to a conference and talk about this? And I said, oh, to an audience of people who are generally committed to misunderstanding me? No, I'm gonna stay home. No, thank you. <laughs> um, so I don't know how we get to that place where we can create a little bit more space there because I do think that the principle is valuable, but there is a lot of negotiating to be done about of course, you don't want to do things that deliberately offend people. And of course, you want don't want to do things that uh, punch towards vulnerable people. Of course, you don't want to do things that could topple the way that organizations work. But there's so much middle ground between what could be done and what that is. And so, I'm hoping we find it. Yeah, for sure. I think I think sources like The Onion do a really good job of, uh, of finding some of that middle ground from time mm -hmm. to time. Uh, and uh, um, 
uh, was it Reductress? I was right? just going to say Reductress uh, is another. Reductress is another great one. one. Yeah, for sure. Where they just kind of nail it. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, let's have a quick segment. Let's break this up really quick. All right. Let's do a quick segment here. We're getting a little deep here. Talk about all this stuff. Uh, let's do a, well, there's a segment on the show that we like to do. It is called Things That You Didn't Know About Me That You Now Happily Do Know. Here's the thing that you should know about the segment um, is that the name changes every time, uh, but the the mission stays the same. You and I are going to share some facts about ourselves, random ones that uh, people wouldn't be able to just kind of pluck out about us. And uh, and so uh, I'll go first rather than just throwing you under the bus. You down to play, Ama? Let's do it. Let's do it. Here we go. When I was younger, the first mammal... And only mammal that my parents allowed me to have as a pet was a bunny. The bunny that I chose was a gray mini Rex for the bunnies or uh, uh, knowledge out there. Uh, if you know your bunnies, you know what I'm talking about. But uh, and uh, and I named it Caniculus, which is Latin for rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, for the most part, for ninety-eight percent of the uh, the bunny's life, it was just known as Fuzzy. But uh, there's there's that little fun fact about me. What you got, Ama? Caniculus. Caniculus. Impressive. Um, <laughs> in, in the spirit of that fact, I will offer that I took Latin for two weeks in the seventh grade and stopped taking Latin because it took place before regular school. So I had to be at school at 7.30 in the morning. And anybody who has known me for longer than four days will know I am a famously awful morning person. Like if I have to be up before 10 a.m., I will complain about it the whole time. Um, So yeah, the timing of taking Latin was an issue for me. So I Mm. tried for two weeks, it did not stick. And then I got to sleep in. At two, Brute. Um, yeah. <laughs> I only understand a little bit of that. It was only two weeks. That's fine. That's fair. I don't... <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Well, let's, let's keep it with languages. Um, my brother uh, was fluent in Russian. Uh, he actually studied abroad, uh, both in the Soviet Union and in Russia, which is kind of cool. Uh, at the time he was going to school was right when it changed. That's, so that's very kinda, cool. Yeah. So, yeah. So he, he studied in St. Peter's and Leningrad and then in St. Petersburg, which are the same city. And uh, but yeah, so super, super random. And uh, and I always thought he was brilliant. My high school had a random we had a Russian class that people could take and a few levels taught by this teacher or Uchitsonitsa as a teacher. <laughs> in Russian is uh, it's a weird flex right there. But, uh, <laughs> but here's the thing is that I took the class because, you know, my brother said I should do it. It's really valuable to him. And I, and I, I looked up to him and I still do, but, uh, and so I did it, but I'm not proud of this. Uh, because I just I just didn't apply myself, and that's pretty much the story of my educational career. Uh, but instead, what I would do is anytime we had a test, I would always go in, and it was one. It was they're the desks that were they were all attached, right? You could open them up and then stick your books in them, but they're like everything's attached. So you could like rock the whole thing back. Yeah. And so I would always sit on the fu- on the back wall, and I would always rock it back. So I was literally leaning on the wall the whole time, doing a doing a wheelie the entire the entire class. Um, and I. I would go in and I would write the words in pencil uh, that of the vocabulary test that we were about to take. Okay. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not proud to admit it, but alas, it happened. That's how I got through Russian and still came out with a decent grade. 
Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know that we would have gotten along in high school. That is un- there. I just, I know I just pissed a lot of people off and here we are, my friends, here we per- are. Permanent records aren't actually permanent. So <laughs> there was no record of it until you just shared it. And now here Yay! it is. <laughs> I just lost my high school transcript. <laughs> Um, let's see. Give us one more. We love one more random fact. I know they don't need to be thematically connected, but now I do feel compelled to share a high school story um, that I actually just remembered. Um, Fairly recently, somebody put one of those prompts out on Twitter about what's a story about you in high school that kind of gives a good indication of who you are now. And the one that I shared was I, in my junior year of biology, happened to be in a class with a group of guys that were just like disruptive and our teacher wasn't really into disciplining them in any way. So it's a class that I needed to study in because it was very difficult for me and I just could not like work it. Um, So I went to our guidance counselor and said, hey, can I switch out of this class into a different section of the same one? And she told me I didn't have a good enough reason and wouldn't let me. But I happened to have a study hall during that class period. So I just talked to the teachers of both of them. I was like, hey, I'm not going to come in when I'm scheduled. I'm going to come in later on. And they were fine. And then the other teacher, I was like, hey, I'm not going to come when I'm scheduled. I'm going to come earlier. And they were fine. So I switched my own schedule, went for three weeks, and like nothing really happened. And then at some point, I think the biology teacher was like, should you tell somebody about this? And I was like, I guess. And then I went back and my guidance counselor was like, we're not going to switch. And I was like, well, I already did. And I'm not going to go back to the other way. So eventually she just kind of granted it <laughs> under duress because I said, nope, your way does not work for me. Yes. Way to put the hammer down. <laughs> <laughs> All the women independent. Uh, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. I love it. Let's jump back in. I want to end on this, on this topic. Uh, and uh, I'm curious to hear, how do you teach creativity especially we know that uh, i i heard i heard a quote recently uh, from someone named anonymous and uh and they said that as children we end sentences with question marks and as adults we end sentences with periods right and and so creativity often doesn't end in a period mm-hmm. right and uh sometimes there's just a, it's a beautiful run-on sentence uh which the adhd inside me loves uh, but <laughs> <laughs> the person who's terrible at grammar. But yeah, how many commas are in the sentence, James? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but so but how do you how do you teach creativity particularly particularly to those who are adults and maybe are feeling stuck? I think what I try to do is start by expanding the capacity of what that means. So I think for a lot of people, being creative at some point got conflated with being artistic. And Mm. I remember having this conversation with my dad about a time that he was in school. So this probably goes back to what roughly would have been like fifth or sixth grade for him um, when he was working on something artistic and the teacher told him that it was bad. Um, And she was just like, well, like you don't really have any aptitude in this and he just stopped most creative endeavors which to me is crazy because he's such a creative person he tells wonderful stories um weaved baskets for a really long time and occasionally when we lived in florida like if you left him in our neighbor's backyard long enough he would just come in with something weaved out of palm fronds just hanging out on his own weaving while people are talking um so he's he's got that kind of capacity but he remembers he's 68 years old and remembers a fifth grade teacher that told him that 
the art that he wanted to make was bad. And I think all of us have some version of that moment. Mm. Um, so being able to say, just because you can't draw a circle or just because whenever you draw people, you just draw stick figures, doesn't mean you don't have the capacity to do things differently. Yeah. Um, if you can get yourself dressed and it looks okay, that counts. If you can successfully put together a meal um, when you haven't gone grocery shopping, what I call amateur chopped, if you can crush that, <laughs> like that's creative. So giving people a sense of the places in which they're already exercising those skills, they open up a little bit because then they're like, if I can do this, then what else can I do? Kind of like the comedy rule, if this is true, then what else is true? Yep. So once they have a sense that that capacity is already there, it's easier to start getting them to a place of, well, let's take stock of the assets that you have and what you could be applying them towards. So if you have these skills already and here are the other things you have in your arsenal, what do you want to change? You probably have what it takes to at least start addressing it. And thinking about it that way, I think just makes it less exclusive um, less elusive. It just gives people the opportunity to say, no, I have what it takes to do this. Yeah. Here's one of the hardest parts of that, I think, because I completely agree with you. One of the hardest parts is that, you know, let's say I, as a 38 year old, uh, have been kind of just like going through the motions of life and telling myself, you know, and just like not really happy and not, not really into it. I now have 38 years or, you know, probably less than that of, of, un, of undoing, unpacking mm -hmm. and, and, and rewriting of, I can do something different. I do deserve to be able to do something that brings me joy. Yeah. Right. Like that is, that's hard work to be able to uh, unlearn what has been taught to you that, you know, this is what success looks like, or this is what you're capable of. Or we all had that one teacher in seventh grade who told us you're not good at this. And then you're like, you believed them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do you help individuals there? Like, where, like, how do you encourage individuals to start that process of getting out of their own way and, and revisiting the creativity, the imagination that adults aren't encouraged to have? Well, I think one of the other pieces of that is kind of the expectation of once you try something and you're not good at it, then it's not worth doing. Yeah. And we have so many elements in society that kind of back up that thinking. Um, but I also think that a more realistic way of approaching that is if you can do something small towards the goal that you're working towards every day, every week, then over time, you'll get to that place where it's a little bit easier mm. to to manifest or to bring forward. Um the Ira Glass quote about kind of gaps in creativity, and he talks about it specifically within the context of storytelling, is essentially most of us who want to do creative things do so because we have good taste. So me wanting to be a comedian because loving the comedians that I watch. And sometimes it's intimidating to do that kind of work because I know what they're capable of and I can see where I am and there's so much space between yeah. that, right? But the only way that I'm going to be able to get to anything near that, if that were what I wanted, it's probably somewhere between the two, um, is to just keep doing it. So like write a joke every day or ask a question of somebody who I'm in a writing group with, does this work? Does this sound good? Going to open mics, even if I don't necessarily like it all the time or want to do it, that's the stuff that closes that gap. So I think another piece of that is not just how do I change all of this, but how do I resist the temptation that all of it needs to be changed in like a week? Um, so making it incremental and be and normalizing that and saying you don't get somewhere massive overnight it could take you a couple months it could take you a couple years it could take decades depending upon the thing that you're working on and the stakes that it ultimately has so 
for me, that's kind of been the approachable part is I'm not coming in to give you an hour on creativity so that your department's going to be different in a month. I'm able to give you that so you can start to plan. What are we going to do tomorrow? What will we do the day after that? What will we do after this? And in three months, where do we want to be towards that goal? Yeah, I love that. And that is, that is super. What a, what a, what a powerful point to end on is that this takes time, but it is work worth doing, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of people love the idea of change. But then they realize that change and work are basically synonyms. <laughs> They're like, hold up, yeah. hold up. I just want to, I just want to change. I don't want to work. <laughs> right. And that's, uh, it is, uh, but I love the way that you put that is that let's look at it incremental. Let's set up some action plans of like, Hey, so if we want to be to this place in a year, two years, what do we need to do tomorrow? What do we need to do in a week? What do we need to do this summer? How about in the fall, right? Like, and starting to set some of those those metrics so that we can actually know that it is working because so many of us, it we don't sit back. It's hard to watch emotional change happen. You don't necessarily, there's no measurable growth, right? Um, there's, <laughs> And so it is one of those times where uh, those kind of metrics that we can try to set out, those action plans, like you said, are, are brilliant. And I love the way that you put that, Ama. Thank you. Uh, and I'm so stoked that you came on today. I'm a Marfo. Thank you so much for being here. Creativity expert, uh, higher education professional. I'll still call you one of those. Thank um, you. But outrageous speaker, hysterical comedian, and uh, and just a damn good person. Ama, thanks for being here and jumping in the diner with me. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. All right, my friends, I'll see you in just a minute. Ama. Uh, everybody else. Thank you so much for hanging out in the diner with me today. Thanks so much for coming through and kicking it with me. I hope your milkshake was tasty. Hope that you even finished the little metal glass on the side, but my friends, I hope that you'll also come in and hang out with us next week. But in between these two episodes, my friends, let us remember that the key to better conversations is asking better questions. And so let's punch small talk in the face and get a little more curious, y'all. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you. Y'all take care. Be well. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. (laughs) If you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, come on now, you're going to make me blush. (laughs) Also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, while we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time. Keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.